Tonight, inside Friday's day of protests, a reporter captures the tensions of the crowds running very high at the dueling demonstrations on the streets in New York City. That, as a Metrofocus special report, starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Ramon, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to this special edition of Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. This weekend, thousands of protesters across the globe took to the streets to show their support for Palestine and Israel. Free, free Palestine! Free, free the NYPD was out in full force, and though tensions were high, there were no reported acts of violence here in New York City. Stephen Vago, a reporter for the New York Post, was in the heart of New York's protests and counter-protests in Times Square, and he joins us now to share what he saw. Stephen, welcome to Metrofocus. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So let's set the stage for this a bit. And I'm sure people have been following all this, but there was heightened concern on Friday because of a declaration that has been made, that had been made through a former representative of Hamas. Tell us about that to, to give us some context here, if you would. So, so a former leader of Hamas, he declared Friday to be a day of rage. He wanted Palestine supporters to hit the street and, uh, in support and express rage. So the NYPD had in their security and they were out in full force all across the city, but especially so around Times Square and synagogues and anywhere where there was a protest. So I'm going to get to Times Square in a moment, but in, in light of that, were there any indications by public officials of any real hard intelligence suggesting the the distinct probability, let's call it, of violence here in New York City? It didn't seem like there was going to be any incidents, uh, but they were just doing it for uh, security and safety. All right. So let's start off and, and talk about what went on in Times Square. Set the scene for us, if you would. Sure. So thousands of people came out. Um, to support Palestine. It first started with a few hundred marching from Baruch. And then by the time I got there at around 3 p.m., the crowd swelled to thousands. And the pro-Palestine side was between 40th to 42nd Street, thousands and thousands of them in the streets. And the pro-Israel side was, um, they were just in one pen, I would say, there were about 150 of them and both sides were screaming at each other, but uh, the cops had it all under control. They were all surrounded by barricades. All the supporters were surrounded by barricades. So anytime uh, one protester crossed to the other side, 
the police separated them. It was kind of like a game of uh, cat and mouse uh, with the police chasing them. So there was not much mayhem from what I, from what I uh, saw. Were there speakers? Let's start with the, the pro-Palestine side. Were there actual speakers or was it simply a collection of folks protesting? It was a combination of uh, speakers and uh, thousands of people protesting. I uh, focused more on speaking to the individual people at the protest. So there was uh, one woman I talked to who she has friends in Palestine and she wanted the end of uh, Israel's uh, occupation, as she said. And she also said, it's fine if people want to apologize for what Hamas did, but then if they're apologizing for, for what Hamas did, then people should also apologize for Israel. That's That was one of her arguments. Did you hear anybody, either the speakers or anybody you spoke to, offering up the the approval of what Hamas had done? We've seen in some protests and other places around the globe that there was literally applause uh, when when mentioned of the Hamas attacks. Did you come across any of that in your conversations and while you were there reporting? From what I saw, there was nobody who came across as um, a Hamas supporter. They were more pro-Palestine and they wanted Israel out of uh, the area. So it wasn't a a, uh, a a protest where there were demands for essentially the extermination of the state of Israel, at least from what you heard? Some people wanted, uh, well, I would. I saw people towards the end of the protest light the Israeli flag on fire. So I would argue, yes, they want the extermination of the state of Israel. How was 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 that visible? The act of lighting the flag on fire was it visible to the the pro-Israeli folks that were across the way? This was at night, so you have to keep in mind that this was Friday night, so it might be the reason why there were so few Israeli supporters, because it's Friday night and it's Shabbat. Right. So at this point, this was when they marched to the UN, and this was towards the, ends of the, uh, towards the end of the protest, so there were no Israeli supporters there at this point. This was and when what was- the crowd was kind of leaving, and then a handful of supporters lit the Israeli flag on fire. And let's go back then to Times Square and in, in terms of the Israeli protesters, what was going on there? Sure. So they were yelling, shame, shame, um, Hamas's ISIS at them. And this one woman I spoke to, uh, a lawyer, her parents are Holocaust survivors. So she was saying what Hamas did, their attack uh, over the weekend was reminiscent of the Holocaust. And she has two sisters in Israel, and she's worried that, you know, there's going to be more violence towards Jews. So uh, I mentioned the introduction that there were also protests that took place in Brooklyn. What did you learn through your reporting about what was taking place there? So after the protest in uh, Manhattan, I believe it was might have been moments after that protest ended, They protested outside Chuck Schumer's Park Slope home and police arrested uh, dozens of them, including some lawmakers. 
Um, but that protest was actually led by a Jewish organization, I believe. All right. And and do you know when we say protest led by a Jewish organization, do we know what that organization was and what were the point of the protests in front of Senator Schumer's home? What the point was? The point was that um, they are concerned about uh, Israel committing possible genocide. So they want, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer's was going to Israel, so they wanted him to not support the war. What about during the course of of the weekend? What else have you learned about what's been taking place in New York City with regard to any other protests in the city or any of the boroughs surrounding Manhattan? Well, over the weekend on Saturday, it rained, so there weren't any uh, protests. There were some protests outside of the city uh, on Sunday, but I believe they were all peaceful. There was also a report about a um, Republican member of the city council um, and Ina Vernikov uh, being arrested Friday. And the the charges had to do with with carrying a firearm. Now, apparently it was a licensed firearm. She was licensed to carry. um, But in, in New York, it's sort of a concealed carry as opposed to an open carry. Can you fill us in on any of the details surrounding that? Sure. So she showed up to a protest with a gun visible in her waistband. And I believe uh, images of it spread on social media. And then the next day she uh, showed up at the precinct and got a desk appearance ticket um, because you're not supposed to show up to a school with a gun. Right. Do we know what the why she was there, what position she was supporting, and what her explanation, if there has been any, about the presence of the weapon was? She's on the pro-Israel side. Um, I believe she might have said she brought it for protection, for safety, because she was scared. Um, but I'm not entirely sure if she's made a statement since she was arrested. So I, I mentioned in the introduction that there did not seem to be any reports of actual violence, um, certainly agitated confrontation. Maybe that's a, a term that might fit what was happening here. But what about arrests being made? What have you learned about arrests as a consequence of any of these protests? Sure. So in uh, Midtown, uh, there were two arrests at Baruch College. Uh, the cops told me both of the protesters got into each other's faces and started shoving one another. So it was uh, two arrests there, one pro-Palestine and one uh, pro-Israel supporter. And then a few hours later, uh, police arrested a woman who was trying to uh, trip and kick cops. And they said at the time that she was uh, resisting arrest. Mm -hmm. So uh, last question for you. And got about a minute and a half or so left here. Uh, Based on what you you've been seeing and hearing, what would you anticipate we might be seeing and hearing in New York City, the surrounding environs, if you will, over the next few days with regard to any more protests? I would expect uh, there to be more protests as uh, Israel continues uh, to enter into Gaza and as the war rages on. Uh, I was surprised with the amount of Uh, pro-Palestine supporters, and I feel like um, that's probably going to continue in the city. 
Uh, but it will be interesting to see if on the other side they come out in equal numbers. Yeah. Like I said, Friday, I believe the numbers of pro-Israel were uh, smaller because it was only hours away from uh, Shabbat services. Yeah, right, right. So it may well be very different in the next few days. Uh, Stephen Vega from the New York Post, you've done wonderful reporting here. Uh, we thank you for joining us, helping us understand all this, and, and perhaps we'll get you back and talk some more as this continues. Stephen, thanks so much. You take care. Thanks so much. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Just over 40 years ago, 26-year-old attorney Robert Hayes took on a pro bono case that turned into the biggest legal victory in history for homeless New Yorkers. And as has happened in the past, that victory, the right to shelter, is once again being challenged, this time by Mayor Eric Adams. His argument that the city does not want to nullify but rather modify the law in response to the asylum seekers crisis New York is currently experiencing. So does the mayor's position have merit? What are his chances of actually winning in court? And what would be the consequences if the law is indeed overturned? Joining us now to help answer these questions is Robert Hayes, the original architect of the Right to Shelter Court Order. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Bob, in, in 1979, you were a young lawyer working at Sullivan and Cromwell, which you called, quote, one of the most white shoe law firms on Wall Street. <laughs> now, fairly or not, I, I don't think most people would associate that kind of person in that kind of place with a homeless advocate. But that's what you became. That's what you're known for. How did that happen? Um, I, a lot of tolerance, a lot of indulgences that provided uh, to me by the firm. In other words, they left me alone. Um, I still had to do my day job, which was, you know, working for big corporations and like antitrust and securities law. Um, but, you know, I lived, you know, in Washington Square in law school, uh, lived nearby a couple blocks away um, as a brand new lawyer. And I got to talk to people on the streets. And what I learned um, was that I was as wrong as most other New Yorkers in believing that homelessness was a lifestyle choice. I found out, you know, conversation after conversation, there was nowhere to go. So I didn't want to get involved in doing something about that. So you took on the city in the Callahan versus Cary lawsuit, uh, the original right to shelter case, and you won. And now what argue, what arguments did you use uh, to win that case when at the time there was no city in the country that had such a thing? And it's still there's still no such a thing in any other city. Yeah. And, and you know, New York was um, coming, as I probably in retrospect understand better, out of its brush with bankruptcy in the mid-1970s. Um, I did not run to court right away. It struck me that uh, if the city officials kind of learned what I learned, that there was nowhere for these uh, homeless men at the time to go, there would be some voluntary response. I mean, it was New York. We had come through... Um, uh, a period of of difficulty financially, and I thought there'd be some reason to help. Um, I think it's fair to say nothing interested city officials less in 1979 than helping homeless people. So, you know, I was a lawyer. Um, I was probably too young a lawyer to know better. Uh, so I went to the library and started digging. And, and what did you find? You found you found something in the Constitution written during the Depression that, that I found was Fascinating. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are there's so many, uh, you know, provisions that we went through, but really the foundation um, 
is a provision in the New York State Constitution that effectively says the aid, care, and support of the needy is a public obligation. Courts have looked at that over the years and said that's you know lawyer language, precatory. It's aspirational. It's something you know we can do if we want to do. That's what the mayor wants to do now, by the way. He wants to shelter people if he wants to. He doesn't want to have a right to shelter. Um, we dug deep. We dug more deeply. And it turned out this constitutional provision was introduced at a convention in 1936 at the height or the depth of the Great Depression. And the proponents said, no matter how hard times get in the future, these are pretty hard times, uh, this will be a very unshakable and unshakable um, message as to the relationship between the state of New York and the people of the state. And we went and just did what lawyers did. They said, shall, they shall provide. Shall means shall, Your Honor. And the judge agreed. So very quickly, very quickly, because I want to get into what the Mayor Adams is, is, is seeking. Um, the right to shelter has evolved over the last 40 years. As you said, originally it, it, it pertained only to homeless men, correct? Now it's gone beyond that. What else, quickly? Yeah, well, um, Raphael, it's been trench warfare from the get-go, to be honest. Um, we finally got a settlement of the case only after the court already ruled that there was a right to shelter. That was for men. When the lawsuit began in 1979, homelessness among men was the big problem. Three years later, the city ran out of shelter beds for homeless women. And guess what? Mayor Koch refused to voluntarily apply the right uh, to shelter to women. So that became a second case, Eldridge against Koch. A couple of years later, families. Third case, McCain against Koch. So um, the fact that we have a mayor in 2023 who's being less than enthusiastic about meeting this obligation uh, has a deep precedent uh, from Koch to Giuliani to Bloomberg to Adams. All right. So let's get to that right now. Uh, mayor Adams has asked the courts to uh, modify right to shelter. Specifically, he's requesting that the state uh, uh, that the state court absolved the administration of the mandate to, to find shelter for homeless adults. Quote, should the city's homeless service department lack the necessary resources to shelter them? Elaborate on why you think that is not reasonable. So that is, number one, not a modification. It's an evisceration or destruction of the right to shelter. Right to shelter is what it is at issue here. Uh, a government, executive branch of government can do, you know, many different things when it chooses to, when it decides that's what we want to spend money on. It's this is what we want to assign staff to. This is what we want to pay attention to. There's thousands of things like that sitting at City Hall every day. A right to shelter, a right to vote. There are certain fundamental things that are very important that are not optional for the executive branch, in this case, the mayor's office, uh, to, to, to meet. And what the mayor is asking for is not really a modification. He's saying we only have to do it kind of when we can, when we feel like it, when it's when it's easy. Rights are for hard times. The right to uh, support during the Great Depression was created during a hard time. And yeah, these are extraordinary circumstances uh, that we've had with the migrant surge. But it's not so extraordinary that we should walk away from rights during hard times. Well, you know, we just recently had Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis here on the program, um, and 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 she said that the right to shelter, uh, the original right to shelter court order, which you should know about, um, couldn't possibly be interpreted to mean that the city is compelled to find shelter for everyone from outside of the country, documented or undocumented, because in effect, that would mean that 
everybody in the planet has the right to shelter in New York City, and the city is obliged to shelter them. And she says that makes no sense. How do you respond? Okay, well, I don't know the Congresswoman, and I don't know how much she knows about the um, uh, right to shelter as enshrined in court documents. But this kind of problem was envisioned even back in 1981. Um, there are you know, pages, not just saying there's a right to shelter, but what it has to look like. We fought for eight months of negotiations to try to make the shelter that was to be provided at least minimally decent. It's not great, but it's minimally decent in most cases. But there's also an appendix to that court order that says in cases of uh, unexpected emergency, we are not going to eviscerate the right to shelter, but we will shift and have discussions about what kind of conditions have to be met. That's happening. The current generation of lawyers, you know, have been very understanding that there will not be a shower for every 15 residents, for instance, at all of these newly opened uh, refuges for um, the asylum seekers. Uh, we really are following that. And it makes what could otherwise be an extremely undoable task eminently feasible. Uh, the mayor has many other options rather than ruining the right to shelter to meet this current very short-term uh, uh, um, surge in demand. And, you know, if I was... For example, for example, what are some of those options? Yeah, well, if I were a Republican member of Congress, the first thing I would be doing is fighting to get work permits for these folks. Um, these asylum seekers are really not much different than, you know, two centuries of immigrant groups coming to the United States. Virtually all of us are descendants of immigrants, 98 99% probably. Um, these are folks who are willing and able in almost all cases to get jobs. You know, I run health centers around New York City now. I'm desperate to hire people. Some of these asylum seekers now in need of shelter are nurses. You know, they won't be licensed in New York right away, but they can get to work. They can support the uh, needs of the people of New York. That's true of many, many, a overwhelming majority of these folks, they will not be in shelters once they can get to work. And Congress and the Biden administration should listen. I'm agreeing with Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul to that plea. Now, do you think that, there, that the city will really always have an option besides modifying or, 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 or canceling uh, uh, the right to shelter? Or do you think there may be a time at some point where, where it'll have to happen? Yeah, you know, I don't think it should happen. There's generations of judges who have, uh, you know, held mayor's feet to the fire. Uh, this mayor should also be demanding that Governor Hochul impose the state constitutional obligation throughout the state. I mean, I had a court order against Orange County. That's where Newburgh is. Uh, when the mayor tried to bust some folks to uh, stay in a hotel in Newburgh, they declared a state of emergency. Nobody remembered that in 1980-something, uh, they too were under this right to shelter court order. So the governor should step up on that front as well. Um, you know, but it's not just a legal issue, uh, Raph. It's, I mean, does this congresswoman really want to have tens of thousands of people living on city streets? Right. That's, and that's, that's what, what that, that would be. I mean, that would be one of the results, right? I mean, you know, I I mean, the um, people are still going to be coming. Yeah. I mean, you know, you and I have been at this for a long time. Right. Um, and, you know, I am glad there's a legal right to shelter that is enforceable. Um, but I think more important is over the 40 years since this litigation began, there's been a shift in how people understand homelessness. I, like other New Yorkers, thought people were living out there by choice. I think now the 
legal cases have merged with a cultural consciousness that recognizes New York is a better city because we don't have mass encampments. We don't have, we have too many people on the streets still, but it's in the very small numbers compared to other major cities around this country and around the world. We're different, we're better, and we should not turn our backs on that. You have said that there is a legitimate concern as to whether or not the right to shelter court order has actually helped to subvert what people really need, which is housing, permanent housing. And you ask, quote, does it kick the housing can down the road? Does it hide the problem? It's a concern you've had. What's the answer? Yeah, uh, there's no simple answer, honestly. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I can recognize the right to shelter as something that has not just made the city better for everyone, but has saved countless lives of people who uh, were able to survive with a not great life as a homeless person who gets shelter. Um, during one administration, that would be Ed Koch's administration, the right to shelter was used as a cudgel to force the development of affordable housing in low-income neighborhoods that were basically abandoned and the city owned a lot of the uh, vacant shells of buildings, the so-called interim housing program. Um, Ed Koch and I agreed long after he had stepped down that that may have been the best contribution we each made to the city. Um, but you know, it's really hard. It's really hard for um, governments to do two things at once. And the immediate often uh, gets uh, kicking, gets us to kick things down, down the road. Um, I'd like to think we have a better system than that. We do now have a very large supported housing business with too many vacancies, by the way, the mayor should get the bureaucrats out of the way, fill those rooms and get people out of shelters. So there has been progress. Um, you know, Coalition of the Homeless, which we started, had as its mandate to end homelessness. And we've failed miserably, but we made some contributions. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.